Welcome back to another episode of Backlash Podcast. I'm Jeff with Team Rhino Outdoors. If you want to check out Team Rhino Outdoors, visit TeamRhinoOutdoors.com. And co-host tonight, today, whatever day it is, we're used, I mean, I'm still kind of used to last year where we used to do this at night all the time, but it's actually daytime. It's the Tuesday before you're going to hear this in typical fashion lately. We've been running a little bit on the late side. But so the co-hosts today are Brad and Carrie Hoppy with Muskie Mayhem Tackle. If you want to check out everything that they have to offer, check out muskymayhemtackle.com. Our guest for today is going to be Dick Pearson. For people that don't know Dick, he's uh, he's a legendary angler, in my opinion. He's one of those uh, he's one of those guys that's been around the industry for pretty much forever. He's forgotten more than I'll ever know about muskies. He's written some books, magazine articles. He's pretty much done it all, a pioneer. He's certainly not a young fellow, but that doesn't mean that his information isn't isn't relevant today. I mean, he's un- unbelievable is the word that I'm going to say, Brad. I would agree with that, Jeff. You know, I I never really got to know Dick that well, but, um, you know, over the years, <laughs> I've been presented a lot of neat things, and, and uh, the neat thing about him is I have a couple different memories of him where he actually supported me when uh, a lot of the other musky groups weren't supporting me. So he's always been on our side, and he's always worked hard, and, I mean, he's an incredible gentleman, that's for sure. Got more time on the water than than most people can imagine. Yes, absolutely. And based on our pre-recording uh, conversations that we've had with him, I suspect that this episode is going to probably be split into two. I just I know how this is going to go with him because he's got a lot to say. I'm not going to say that he rambles because he just has a lot of thoughts on certain things, and so he's going to let you know his thoughts, and I think that's awesome. It's going to be a little bit different, I'm certain, you know, we kind of laid an outline out to him about what we what we plan to do. So the first episode you hear here might not be as like information packed as far as stuff that you can utilize on the water instantly, but I think it's he's still going to bring a lot to the table in my opinion, and he, I'm sure he's just going to have a great episode. To a couple of them, I'm I'm willing to bet. We'll see how this rolls, but I'm guessing that's how it's going to go. He's uh, definitely a deep thinker, Jeff, and with that thinking, I don't think his brain ever shuts down when it comes to musky fishing, as well as hunting and other different things in his life. Man, with deep thinking like this, he definitely brings a lot to the table, so he's going to offer a really cool podcast. you got to definitely stay tuned. Absolutely. For anybody that wants to know a little bit more about you know, Dick, you could check out his book, Muskies on the Shield. It's not a new book. I mean, it's probably been out for, it's been out longer than I've been musky fishing. So I'm guessing maybe 20-ish years or so. So people want to check that out. I think you could probably still find it. I'm not 100% positive. I've, I have one. It's highlighted up from different things that I noted on it. Even though it's about shield lakes, I tried to apply it to the stuff that I was, I was fishing. So anyways, uh, you're listening to Backlash Podcast. And if you want to check out our stuff on social media you can check us out on instagram and facebook backlash podcast you can email us backlash podcast at gmail.com we do the best to respond in a timely manner but that doesn't always happen because of the fact that we run two businesses speaking of the businesses as i mentioned before i run a company called team rhino outdoors we're a retailer in the musky world that does uh, pretty much every single major manufacturer in a pile of the small the little small guys we specialize in custom colors, but we also do some stock and normal standard stuff that you'd see around. 
We've um, we've been busy lately, and we've been adding stuff to the website. Hopefully, we have um, some new stuff added even before you get to this podcast. I know we got some flap tail, some Smitty baits that have been sitting around for a while, some hook files. Should hopefully see some custom colored in a regular swimming dog showing up today. Not every color available, but some of them. So that's kind of a rundown on Team Rhino Outdoors. Brad and Carrie, why don't you talk a little bit about Muskie Mayhem Tackle? We are the original manufacturers of the big bladed flashable bucktails. If you want to find us, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram. You can also find us and our products at muskymayhemtackle.com. Um, you can check out some videos we've put out on YouTube. We, we have one more, one more week. We finish off this week, and we'll be start start to film again once we can fish again. So, Minnesota openers this weekend. Life will be good. Minnesota opener is this weekend. That's awesome to hear. Yeah, going to be able to see. Uh, almost everybody will be back in action as far as slinging musky baits. I think we got to wait for some people in Canada to get rolling on that. But I think everybody else is going to be full swing. Yep coming quick excited about it i'd say that we're maybe a week maybe two weeks ahead of schedule as far as uh water temps that can be a good thing yeah especially i don't know what the weather's like over in minnesota but today in wisconsin it's supposed to hit roughly 90 so and i know the next then we have a cold front on wednesday which would be tomorrow the day after you hear the, or the day that you hear this podcast and it's supposed to be 80 so that's our cold front and it looks like 80 for a couple of days so i'm you know, water temps are going to come up. Everything's going to start to, I'd say, get more like summer patterns, I'm guessing. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. I, I honestly believe that the spawn is over just based off of some different things that we've seen on the water the last couple of days. And then also people throughout the state, even two hours north of me, they are saying that the fish are in their eater spots versus the spawning area. So, like I said, we're a week or two weeks ahead. Um, I'll know more after the weekend, that's for sure. Absolutely. Well, unless you guys have, I'm certain that we'll get an update for you for the next podcast. I'm sure we'll talk to Brad and Carrie and see how Minnesota opener went. But unless you guys have anything to add to this intro, let's just uh, let's get Dick on the phone and talk to him and see what's going on in his world. Let's go after it, man. I'm looking forward to this one. All right. Our guest today is Dick Pearson. Dick is a author of Muskie on the Shield. I first ran across Dick, I think, knowing of him anyways. I never met him personally. I think he used to write for Esox Anglers, where I used to see him all the time. I know that Dick's been out of the game for a little while or laying low or whatever and maybe enjoying retirement. I hope he's enjoying retirement. But anyways, Dick, we really do appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to come on the podcast with us. I know that this is going to be a good one. So thank you for coming out. We really appreciate it. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine. How are you guys? So far, We're so doing good. good Dick. All right, it's great. Excited about this. And and uh, Carrie's on there too, right? Yep, I'm here. Good, good. I'm go I'm I, I got to talk to you sometime about destroying my thumbs with uh, double tens and so on, but uh, it's all good. Uh, the other thing is, <laughs> I, right, I've got to say, I do have to say that I really have been retired, and I've tried to stay out of the way of all the young guys that are smarter and have more solid information than me, but you've got a, you've got that friend Keith that's probably been, he's been really good to me and he's been pushing me for probably six months on this. And, uh, 
but it's been good because I got into it. I started thinking about some things and I'm kind of actually excited about it and looking forward to it. So the other thing though, you got to understand I am kind of a dinosaur. So you're, you're digging up probably old history to a lot of these people, at least in some of the things I'm going to say, but uh, we'll see, we'll see where it goes. There is one current issue that I would like to address just briefly with your permission. And that has to do with, uh, the COVID situation and the Canadian border being at least temporarily closed uh, to U.S. fishermen. I've got that reputation of being sort of a shield-type Canadian guy and know a lot about it, so on. So I've, I've had a number of inquiries over the past few weeks um, suggesting that, or at least giving me the impression that some people are contemplating violating the ban and sneaking into Canada or like on Lake of the Woods, sneaking into Canadian waters from U.S. waters. I find that very disturbing. I think it's foolish and short-sighted on their part, and I hope people don't do that. I think they personally run the risk of uh, of probably never, if, 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 if caught, and they have to know that there are drones and all sorts of things now, and I would have to assume that, that security is going to be enhanced. They have to know they're likely to be caught. They're likely then to be banned from Canada and uh, and fishing there, perhaps forever. Who knows? I wouldn't. That wouldn't surprise me. But but more importantly to me is the effect on the relationship between us fortunate people that can go there and fish and use their resources and and the Canadians. Um, I had a. Uh, I ended my book by talking about about the shield and telling everyone how it was a place of my dreams and and nearly a way of life for me to be there a good part of the year and how appreciative I've been to the Canadian uh, people uh, and how wonderfully I think they've treated us and allowing us to use these resources. And I, I, I ended that my book with saying, hey, don't be an ugly American treasure and appreciate what Canada is allowing us to do. And uh, please, please do not try to violate the border ban this will this will pass and hopefully everything will get back to normal so well anyway enough preaching guys but i just wanted to mention that so there it is yeah i think that that's uh reasonable enough you know here's the deal dick uh we all enjoy canada at times and uh definitely something that we need to be aware of so dick standard procedure on a podcast when we have a first-time guest on we, we like to get a background history on them. With you, the history runs really deep. I mean, you've been musky fishing for probably much longer than I've even been alive. And so if you could, for the listeners, could you just, I don't want to even say give a brief history, just give us a rundown of who you are. If this podcast ends up running long and we got to do two parts with you, we'll be certainly happy to do that. I got as much time as you're willing to talk. So why don't you start talking about a little bit of musky history and a little bit about you talk a little bit about your book and however you want to do it. It's your, the stage is yours. All right. Well, thank you, Jeff. I guess as, as far as muskies go, the, the first time I fished muskies would have been in the early sixties. I was, I was attending college at the university of Wisconsin, Madison. I had some friends there, made some friends there that took me musky fishing and I kind of got the bug real bad. I, I don't remember even the names of the places we went. I think the, places we fished were all uh, relatively small flowages, as was the case with, I'm sure, 99% of the musky fishermen back then. We fished nothing but weeds, and I remember, I don't remember using anything but, but bucktails, 
And I remember I eventually caught one and so on. And then I kind of got away from it for a while. I went on, ended up going in the service. I ended up going to law school. So that probably, in fact, I was a lawyer. Probably you just lost half your audience there. But anyway, that's the fact. And so we'd have to, monkey-wise, we'd probably over, uh, fast forward to the uh, early 70s. Uh, I, I ended up going to Leech Lake with, uh, with a friend and, and we ended up in Portage Bay casting and, and a little bit of outside weed edge trolling in Portage Bay on those gigantic long, some of them half mile or more weed beds. And I saw there were a lot of boats up there. And, you know, I saw a few fish caught and we didn't catch anything. We had a few follows. That was exciting for me. So I said, you know what? I'm going to, I told my wife, I said, we're going back there. I said, I'm going to catch one of those things up there. But I, I remember we, I took some spinner baits and we went into those large wheat beds and I thought I'd just try slow rolling and bingo that worked. And then someone I can't remember recommended the suic. And so we bought a couple of suics and, the next time we were up there, we ran across the five mile and I five mile point and some more weed beds. Again, we were fishing weeds. That's all people back then fish, at least the people I knew. And in uh, one night, I ended up uh, using a technique with a suic that I, I don't do anymore. But for what it's worth, I used to pop it, give it a pop. I had I had the tail set, so I would pop it and then it would back up out of the weeds and sort of splash. And then I wait just a second. I'd pop it again. I was popping away in there, and on one night, I got two 48-inchers while I was in. I'm sure, because back then, a 48-incher would probably be the equivalent of a 52 now, and uh, away we went, Uh, and uh, the disease disease spread and pretty much consumed me for many, many years. I also had, I I love to hunt. I hunt, I've hunted all my life, and I had spent Previously, I'd spent time in Ontario on the shield in the spring, particularly archery hunting for bear and walking up sucker creeks, looking for bear and finding lakes and that sort of stuff. So I thought, you know what, why don't I try this now that I got this bug? Why don't I go to Canada? And well, I, I made a mistake. I went, I went to some trout water, couldn't find any weeds. And I started just playing around. This is an abbreviated version. I started playing around pretty soon. I started finding muskies and then uh, I guess you could say there was probably 10 years that some friends called my lost years where I pretty much was just totally out of control. And I ended up fishing, I don't know, 40, 50 different lakes. And I ended up doing my, you know, find, finding things that worked for me other than weeds because on some of these lakes, there were very few, if any. And uh, so, so that was kind of it. And then I guess what probably moved me more toward how I got this, how I got to be a little bit known is um, I, 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 back in those days, I fished Pipestone Lake a lot. You know, the legend was I was always saying, he used to say that saying the editor is fishing. And I was, it used to say I was sleeping in the bottom of the boat. Of course, some truth there, but uh, not always. But anyway, I was on, I was on Pipestone Lake by myself. I noticed, that there was a there was a group of people around that really seemed to know what they were doing, and they were seemed to be fishing a little bit of everything. Well, it turned out because fast forward here, it was the in fisherman crew. It was Al Linder and Stangy, and I don't think Ron Linder was along, but they had a they had a, a full crew along, and they were doing a multi species thing 
And of course, being the Lindners and being the uh, the experts they are, it didn't take them long to do the walleyes. It didn't take them long to do the the smallmouth. Didn't take them long to get into some lake trout. But they were struggling with muskies because I think then almost everyone fished weeds, and there were very very. I, I didn't know anyone that fished any rocks or fish current or fish walls or anything like that. So turns out the resort owner. Told him, I, you know, have you seen this old blue beat up Lund out there with guy all by himself? And they said, yeah, Stangy, I guess, was the one that talked to him or something. And yeah, we've seen him out there. Um, you know, he kind of runs away from us, and that was me. And uh, well, anyway, they tracked me down. Stangy was that was the that was the first time I met Stangy, and we ended up being friends and hunting together and so on. But tracked me down, and uh, they wanted some some suggestions about muskies that was a part of of the multi-species program they couldn't put together and i resisted at first and they tracked me down again i don't remember how many times and eventually i said you know what i'm better off to (laughs) to try to help them here a little bit so they get the hell off this lake but uh at the time that i agreed to help them a little bit staying it was fishing with a guy that i don't know very well or didn't know very well um, I think his name, his, I know his name was Portantasso. I think it was Tor, Tony Portantasso. He subsequently found out that he was also a great fisherman. But those two tracked me down, and I gave them a few spots. And I'll be dang, much to my surprise, they went in, and they they both got 50-inch uh, class fish, both of them slightly over, I think, like 51s or something. And, of course, if you know Doug saying it all, you know, from that point on, he was, he was on me once once he got back in the states and i got back he started uh really coming after me to to do something or to write an article and so on and i resisted for quite a while i think if memory serves my wife and i were living on leech lake then and i remember he would come up from brainerd and he would go down and in our we had a boathouse and it was full of musculars and anyway he started you know, saying he's not dumb. He started working on my wife, and one thing led to another. She said, well, maybe we should do something. And so I did an article for the end fisherman. I think it was in 80, I think I did it in 81, and I think it was published in 82. And I talked about walls and wind and current and everything, everything about fishing muskies on trout water except weeds. And, of course, some camps, including a lot of my friends, I was, talking heresy and that's just all bs and you know no one does that you got to have weeds and and so on so that's kind of where the known part of me came about that's how it came about and then you know that led to other things eventually and i you know eventually i ended up with esox research company and and we did the triple d and the hellhound and we sold uh, some of my Spinner baits and things like that, but you know that's kind of how I got going. Is that kind of stuff, and then pretty soon you you're asked to do seminars, and then for I don't know, ten fifteen years I did all the shows, uh, Chicago and Minneapolis, etc. That's the the background in terms of how I got into the sort of the known part of musky fishing. I don't know if that was a good thing or bad. Um, all, all there were plenty of years where I thought it was a bad thing. I said, "Geez, I've kind of destroyed my." my freedom and now people recognize me and so on. But, but overall, I'm, I think, I think it's been very, it's been very good it's been pretty rewarding in terms of helping people. And, and 
you know, having, I get a lot of information too from other people as a result of that. And, and that's been helpful. I've always been blessed with, uh, with uh, great friends, lots of, lots of friends that have helped me along the way. You know, a lot of people that you would, that a lot of people wouldn't even know, like Chan Cotton, Doc Cotton, and Roger Halverson. And I know uh, Brad and Kerry, you, you know, and for close friends with Al Scar. So I've had friends like that, that, that you know, in reality, I guess weren't as well known, but that always pointed me in the right direction if I was doing things wrong or gave me gave me hints in terms of blurs and presentation and you know i mean i've i've been i've been truly blessed so i i get the credit for a lot of things that that really could be traced back to uh to my friends and a lot of friends that aren't known i you know some of the best fishermen i know they they're the shyest people around they will not they will not let me refer to them by name or or a picture or anything so that's a little bit of background i don't know if you want a little background about about the you know the places I've been or or things like that. I mean, I, I've got some interesting interesting history on on some of the what I would call the the hot spots that exploded over the past few decades, like Wabagoon and Laxul. I can share a couple of quick stories on those if you want. But that's that's pretty much it. And, and now now I have to say that I've been kind of uh, I, I kind of. Uh, you know, retired from, from the known musky scene. And, uh, I, I, I still try to fit, find a couple of new spots each day. I still try a few weird things, but pretty much the last five, six years, um, nothing state of the art has come, come out of, uh, of, of Pearson and, and so on. So I, I've, I've been more just, just relaxing and fishing and I've been doing most of it on Lake of the Woods. We've had, We've had cabin up there and so on, and so I'm trying to enjoy life. Um, and I'm I'm slowing down, you know, with age, and uh, I don't do much exploring. Might touch on it later. I still got lots of ideas, and I just might as well touch on it briefly now. I've got a couple of uh, young friends, young not not twenties, but older than that. But I've got a couple friends that that uh, I send on wild goose chases now and then, and. Uh, and once in a while, um, bingo, um, they're hitting on, on these choices. I've actually gone with them now to a couple of spots. One of the friends, for instance, I think last year got somewhere between 12 and 15 fifties. And, and a, what I would have to say is a new spot. I've got another friend, a Canadian friend, who is probably one of the best fishermen I've ever been blessed to be with. He's doing exploring for me following some suggestions I've given him. And the result of that the last couple of years have been a couple of what I think are potentially new fisheries. I don't know on what scale, but I mean, in one, he got a 54, and then last year he got a 56. And uh, that's, <laughs> that's pretty spooky stuff because, uh, well, border, border willing, I'll get to see some of it this year. Um, my plan would be to spend most of my time on the woods, but Obviously, I got to go take a look at a couple of those spots. So, I don't know if that's what you want, but let me let me just say this: I will go out about Wabagoon because I was sort of there at the beginning. In fact, I was there. I think the big, those years on Wabagoon where that went totally crazy. I mean, unheard of crazy in terms of big fish, uh, uh, pike, and muskies. I think those years were 
80 and 81, probably when everyone was up there, people camping on islands, all the resorts, full, that sort of thing. I was blessed. Uh, an old-timer, a friend of mine, Roger Halverson, took me there, I think. Roger and I did some exploring together, and he was a real explorer. I mean, he'd throw a, a 12-foot uh, lug. He'd, he'd drag that down, a, you know, through the woods and down a creek and up a river, and I mean, he and and, and it, 25 even root, he used to call them even roots. Mercury's are black anchors, and but he had to have an even root. Now it's kind of reversed the last few weeks, that way it sounds. But anyway, uh, I think it was 78, Roger took me to, to a Wabagoon, and we met up with a guy, a Canadian guide there, named Craig Dawson, who was quite a character, caught a ton of gigantic fish there, and was unknown, at least to me and anyone I knew was relatively unknown, if not totally unknown, other than to a few guests at the lodge he guided out of. Um, we met him, we met up, and I, I want to say Roger and I caught like six nice muskies that first day. We had, everything went well, we had weather, Roger knew it. So I got in on that early, but not, not through my exploring, again, through someone else's efforts. Uh, Roger had been there and he knew Craig and so that's how that's up. But we got a, a year or two, uh, or I got a year or two there before the, you know, the crowds. The lac Sewell thing is is really a unique thing, and this is the this is the honest to God truth. At the time that this happened, I don't. I mean, I knew. I lived again. I was up on Leech, and I knew some of the best walleye guys around at the time. Guys that spend a ton of time in Canada. Um, and lots of time in Lac Sewell, even then fishing walleyes. And that's what Lac Sewell was known for. There were, uh, there were even ministry people that would tell you that there were no muskies in there. It's hard to, hard to imagine that. But also keep in mind that, uh, in fairness, you know, they, they were limited to, to certain pockets in the lake, most of them being in the Northeast. But, you know, they, it turns out now there's, they're in more places than, at least initially thought, but but no one thought of that as a musky water. So anyway, we're living in Walker, and I got in the habit. Uh, we lived on the lake, and uh, I got in the habit of having uh, what we uh, the bay we lived on was called Shinga Bee Bay, and I got the wild idea that every spring on the opener, the Minnesota opener, I would have a we, we called it a tournament. It was called the Shinga Bee Classic, and I would invite. It was invitation only. I would invite. Primarily old timers from Minnesota, Twin Cities area, Roger and those guys in Fergus. I would invite, you know, known people to me only, a few people from Wisconsin once in a while, and I'd have this tournament. And it was it was not a tournament. We, they would come on a Friday night before the season. We'd grill venison and drink beer and you know that sort of thing. And then Saturday we'd fish. Saturday night we'd have a get together. Sunday morning we'd fish, and then Sunday we'd have award ceremony for most fish, biggest biggest fish, things like that. And I gave out hats. Everyone got a hat. <laughs> and uh, anyway, so one night at the, I don't know, the second or third annual Shingabee Muskie Classic, we called it, we're sitting in our little cabin there on Leech, and I, we're in my kitchen. My wife and I are in the kitchen. I know Jack Burns, the, the, the two key people that were in the kitchen with us, were uh, Jack Burns, editor of Esox Angler, musky fisherman extraordinaire, now unfortunately deceased, 
and uh, Steve Fuller, then an attorney and fishing buddy from uh, Bemidji. Still, I think he's retired. I know Steve's retired now. In fact, I talked to Bob Strand yesterday, and we talked about Steve, and he, he is retired. But we're, we're in the kitchen. Everyone's having a beer. I don't you know. We were, you know there, most people are in the living room and so on. And we're just having a good time. And there was a grand old gentleman, and I'm not sure if Tommy's still alive or not. He was a, one of the founders of Muskie's Inc. In the, from the Twin Cities. Uh, he had a slight disability in, in one arm and so on. But Tommy Hansen was a legend to those who know it. And he was the shyest, most secretive guy you could imagine. But he would go poking U.S. and Canada, sometimes by canoe or john boat or whatever, he would go poking all around, multi-species, but really loved muskies. So at that at the classic, we're in the kitchen, and this is truly how Laxu will start. He comes walking in and says something to the effect, unfortunately, <laughs> or fortunately, I guess I should say, he says it out loud in the presence of Burns and Fuller and a few other people. He says, Dick, he said, I've got to talk to you and Betsy about something. And it goes along the following lines. He says, you know, I know you like to snoop, you two. He said, well, let me tell you something. I am up on Laxul. You heard of that? I said, oh, yeah, the walleye capital, Canadian walleye capital. He says, yeah. He says, but I'm up there. I'm poking around. And he says, I'm over around Wapizi Bay. And he said, I'm just casting down the shoreline. He says, you know, the damnedest thing. He says, all of a sudden, bingo. He says, you got a muskie on. He says, no follows, no nothing, just bingo. He says, well, not a lot on. He says, but, you know, he says, I'm gawking around. He says, boom. He says, you know, it might be 48 inches. Hell, he says, it might be bigger. He says, but no follows. He's no figure eight. He says, no nothing. I said, oh, come on, Tommy. No, he says, I, you know, and it just seems, he said, to be in that one general area there. He says, I just thought you'd be interested. He says, there's clearly muskies there. Well, <laughs> if you knew Fuller and you knew Jack Burns and you knew me, um, it's back in those days, it kind of went quiet. And I could see the mines turning. I could see the guys sort of turning around, walking out of the room. <laughs> After it was all over that night, we were getting ready for bed. And I remember telling my wife, I said, oh, my God. Tommy has no idea what he just unleashed. And, and the rest is history. And it's so funny because Burns' crew ended up hauling in gas by the barrel. And they end up, if you're familiar at all with that northeast part, they ended up camping in, in, in ground zero. They, they camped uh, on or around, um, what is it, Merit, Merit Point? Yeah, I think it's Merit Point. And the sandbar there. They had, they're, they're, they're some of their some of their old cooking stuff is still back in the woods there. I, I saw it there a couple of years ago. And then Fuller and his crew, they they landed in, in Little Chamberlain, mostly at the resort, sometimes at an outpost. I don't think they camped much. Burns and those guys camped a lot. And they started, and that's how it took off. And uh, we had a couple of years of relatively secretive, beyond world-class fishing, um, multiple big fish, lots of big fish, 57-inch types. And then 
Um, I, I got to be careful what I say here. Anyway, it was someone in Burns's extremely secretive crew, I think, that let it out. I think it ended up, um, I think, with, with um, uh, Bob Mezzacomer. I'm not sure how that went, but I, I know that I think it caused some friendship problems and so on. But anyway, that's how it started. And no, you know, look where it's gone. And no one would believe you could go to that part of Larkville. You could fish all day for two weeks and never see another muskie fisher. And all the time, if you had other things going for you, if you had some weather, if you had some basic skill, you know, you you were into fish of a lifetime with some regularity. And then, of course, uh, as most things, I shouldn't say it goes to hell. But but it changes, you know. With with pressure comes change, and and uh, some good, some not so good. But anyway, that's that's probably enough history for you guys. Um, but that that that's of interest because I've I've told that to just a few groups of people over the years, and it seems to fascinate people. But that's that's the truth. I mean, that the Laxul thing goes back to Tommy Hansen from Minneapolis, Minnesota. <laughs> Hopping away, I don't think he was in a canoe, but I bet it was a very small boat all by himself in the middle of nowhere. And and his comedy says, funniest thing, Dick. He says, no follows, all of a sudden, bingo, you just got one off. <laughs> so anyway, I'll, uh, I don't know if that's probably, that's probably enough, uh, enough history for you guys. So you, you take it for a while. Well, I got a question for you, Dick, and I, I'm curious, you know, you'd mentioned, you know, what I know of you and what I think of you a lot, and this maybe isn't the right direction, but I think of you as being the explorer, kind of like you were just talking about, and then on top of it, the researcher, and I'm curious if you could kind of expel on how you research, what, what is it that you're looking for when you're looking for new musky water? Sure. Again, I'll try to be as brief as I can, but but you, you have to remember, what, you know, I, this is before GPS, this is before good maps, this is before anything aerial. What I would end up doing is word of mouth might take me to X. And if X had muskies, if there was a river that went to Y, I had to go to Y. And if Y went to Z, I had to go to Z. And that's how you do it. You find out, you know, that you... You can bushwhack it, and I've done this many times, walk in a mile or two or three from the nearest possible road just to see what the water looks like. Is it clear or what is it? You know, now you, now you can know. You can go online and find anything else. So I've done that. But, but basically what you end up doing is you end up, you know, primarily looking at the river systems. Uh, you know, it, it could be the Winnipeg, the English, um, all a number of river systems you end up looking looking at it and there you go and then of course there are well i spent i spent tons of time um, going up the Seine river and you know we were in muskies i i didn't get into muskies very far beyond wild potato but i could come out of from rainy lake and Seine bay go up the river first it'd be shoal lake then wild potato and so we would do that you know, that, that was the way we did it. And I got to be careful. My wife's probably listening out there. And I know one time we broke down in, in uh, the top end of wild potato. And if you've ever been there, it's a long hike back. And we broke down 
We had a 50 Merc killer, I remember, one of those good old reliable Mercs. We broke down, and I, I mean, I, I probably could change the spark plug, but she wouldn't trust me with that. And I remember that I burned up just about our two batteries on, I don't know what it would have been, 50 volt, 70 volt maybe, trolling motor casting. And I, I went out a wild potato casting. She had parts. She had carburetor parts. She had parts all over the boat. She's working. And I casted from wild potato down through shoal and was in the Chad River Channel between shoal and Seine Bay when she got the damn 50 running again. So, I mean, that was a sort of... <laughs> That's the sort of stuff we did. And, you know, I had, uh, uh, let me think of, you know, I had all kinds of dry runs. Um, one that comes to mind is I had bear hunted east of the, east of, uh, of, uh, oh, the, the same, east of Rainy Lake, let's put it that way, on the Queens Highway over toward Atticokan and that way. I had, I had spring archery hunted bear up in there. And I'll give you, this is a dry example. There were a chain of lakes. If memory serves, it was Mannion, then Pettit. And there were, there were channels and portages that involved in all of this. Mannion, Pettit, and I think it ended in Mount. And I knew from bear hunting that up in Mount Lake, um, in the spring bear hunts, we could, we could throw some dead bait out and, and catch all the lake trout we wanted to eat. And once in a while, gigantic northerns. And I said, you know what? I looked around and I said, God, there's muskies in there. Well, I, I mean, I, I spent a lot of time and, you know, portaging and everything else in three lakes, only to discover that, in my opinion, they're not there. They've never been there, never will be there. And, and now, of course, the ministry confirms that. Um, although they, 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 people can be wrong. Um, I've, I've had those examples too, but. You know that's what it is. That's probably more than you you wanted, but but that's what I do. And you had no, you you really had no no maps that were worth a damn. And so you made do. I I can remember on on one of the river systems um, there was a resort way the hell up the system, and most of it was flying. But I got there by boat, and I remember going in and buying a meal and the. They had sort of a dining room for guests, but they they agreed I could get a hot meal. And uh, they had a they had a placemat underneath your plate that that drew the lake and had a couple X's on it. Well, I, I took that placemat with me. <laughs> I learned the spots off that placemat. So you know, it was weird. It's, it's weird stuff, and you learn to carry props. And uh, you know, it, it it was it was a feat. People never appreciate the feet of some of the things I did because I'm a mechanical idiot. And so I had to be really careful because the things went south and they often did. I mean, there's good, good chance I couldn't fish them. And now, you know, now you can go online and find, I'm sure, just about anything you would need to know about any lake. Someone has been there and done it, or there is a survey on it, or there is a ministry or a DNR or whatever. There, there's there's information on the lake probably right down to the CT disc reading and you know so it's a totally it's a totally different world um, I, I end that my book by the way by talking about the age of discovery was was my life and the new age of discovery will be uh, and we might get there depending how long you let me ramble the new age of discovery might be more in terms of technique and technology 
And and I say specifically in my final page of the book, the final couple of pages of the book, that a big part of the future is likely to be open water as technology advances. And I think, again, I'm a dinosaur here, but I think that that's starting to be borne out. And hopefully, uh, as this thing progresses, I'll be able to talk about some things that I think are exciting. I mean, the United States Geological Survey, for instance, is now using thermal cameras to trace water temperature differences in river. I mean, they're doing it to locate inappropriate water sources entering rivers and things like that, but, but they are, and maybe there's, maybe there's other technology out there that guys, fishermen are using, but they are, in fact, able to use thermal handheld cameras and determine water temperature and water movement based on temperature within the water column. Uh, even on fast-moving streams. And if I had that out over open water, and I could go down to, say, a deep structure that I know wind current is coming back over, you know, blows one way and then deep down at the thermocline or, or some level that's coming back, if I could find where all that was happening based on water temperature, not only do I think we would find, we'd find the whole chain there because that water flow and that water temperature change will concentrate the whole food chain, I think. That's my, some of my theories. We'll get to them, I suppose. Um, but, I mean, that, these advances are amazing now. We didn't have any of that. And so, really, I mean, there was nothing sophisticated about what I did. There really wasn't. I mean, it was just uh, grit and, and desire and, uh, and uh, a lot of help. And you just went and did it. No, it's interesting, though, Brad. It's a great question for a couple of things. Back in the day, people would start musky fishing. But very, very few continued. And that's the truth. That's why there was us old war horses back then. Because, you know, I mean, if you were, if you were spending 90% of your time throwing the same bait at the same weed beds, Life, life could get very cruel to you. I mean, you know, you just there. There wasn't the excitement, and it was it was it was work. I guess is what I'm saying. And a lot of people found that that wasn't very rewarding after a year or less. And so there are much fewer monsters now with technology. It's so much more enjoyable, and and everyone can, you know, navigational wise, everyone can go almost anywhere now in relative safety if they use their heads. That wasn't the case. Um, even Lake of the Woods. I remember Doug Johnson took me up there. The first time I fished Lake of the Woods was with Doug, and, and I got a real awakening there, a good one. Uh, but, but then when we started fishing together, I'll give you an example. We would take, we had an old fiberglass boat, for instance, and we would take, let's say we took three tanks of gas. We had, we, had, we had five gallons full, and we had three more fives in there, or two fives. Well, I mean, in those days, you took off, even Doug, we took off, I remember one day going west, out of the angle, and, and uh, or east, I mean, I'm sorry, east, and, uh, you know, you would go until you had burned half your gas, then you'd turn around, you'd be fishing primarily new spots the whole time. You'd turn around, and you'd, oh, time to head back, you know, I mean, that's the way it was. <laughs> it was pretty damn unsophisticated. You know, but the, the good news is, you know, you learn through the school of hard knocks what's likely to work, what may be worth looking at, what may be worth fishing, etc. So there was good and there was bad, and uh, but it was nothing. 
you know, people say, well, I, there was some magic involved. There was no magic at all. I mean, you had to be dumb. You had to be gritty and dumb like me. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you just, you just went and did it. And sometimes it worked. Most of the time it didn't. And that part of musky fishing hasn't really changed. But there we go. I'm rambling again. So where do you want to go? So, Dick, if you were going to approach a new body of water today, what would be like the top three basic things you would do first? Well, first I'd go online and find out everything I could about it. First, you know, like hard hard facts of the lake. What any studies done? Is there is there stocking? You know, you could you can you could you know get on on the Navionics app or or the Hummingbird app or whatever uh, Lake Master. And, and so I I would get the lake basics, and then I'd get the online gossip. Um, once in a while, I'll dip into Muskie Inc. records and see how long that lake has been producing, that sort of stuff. And then, you know, for me, really nothing magic. The second, I get, get as much as you can about the, the lake and the structure and what's been going on with it. And then, I mean, I just, I'm still old school. I, I jump in the boat and, and, uh, and I go do it. And I... I, in my book, I think, talked about my approach back in the day, which was you had map one, you had map two. Map two never got wet, never got written on until it had something really worth writing. It stayed in the cabin or at home or whatever. Map one was basically going out with the, you know, and, and checking out the lake, marking decent-looking spots, but, but just a, a total overrun of the lake. Unless it's a monster, then you'd and you bite it off in sections. And so first, as much as you can, you can get without on the water. Second, I, and I still do the same. I then go to the water, do as absolute much as I can in terms of spots and types of structure available, depths, get, get an overall feel for the lake, hopefully see a few fish. And then I get the lake marked on map one. I still do that. Now, it might, it might be the Nav- Navionics app on my phone, but more than likely not. More than likely a hard hard copy map if I've got it or an aerial photo. And so map one is getting marked up. This, this, and, 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 you know, it's red, red if it's rocks, red X if it's, if it's dangerous rocks, green if it's weeds, two shades of green if it looks really good, that kind of stuff. Now I now I got something to work with. Well, then I start whether I'm on the toilet or before I can fall asleep. I'm studying that damn map, and I'm thinking about wind direction. I'm a big wind nut. Um, hopefully, I can stay off that a little bit later on in our talk. Um, but I, I'll look at it in, in terms of all the features that concern me: depth, where's the spawning, which way is the prevailing wind, what 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 parts of this lake are likely to be early what parts might be mid or late season that sort of stuff you know it's, it's taking the school of hard knocks and uh, the time on the water and and working on on uh, on map one now and then the final step would be let's go out and and do it and i would again this depends on where we are and how far away from home and so on but i would i would then really Ideally, not go back under the water until I had good weather. I'm a big weather guy. 
bait and weather, and, and we'll talk about the moon, and I'll make some enemies and, as usual. But anyway, I, I, I'm a big weather guy. So I, if I get the opportunity, that's when I'm going to go back and start working on map two. And map two is only, only when I see fish or I call it my heart racing. When my heart starts to race on a spot, even if I haven't seen fish, those spots will show up in detail now on map two. How I expect that I would be approaching them, and usually that would, in my mind, would have factored in wind possibilities. Where, where is, is, is it a point that's out in the bigger part of the water that's going to have a lot of wind current and underflow and so on? So I got all this stuff that, that it's hard to describe, but really it's just what do I have to do to get them? What time of the year am I going to get them? Um, and then I end up pretty confident about the lake. Um, and so, you know, that's pretty much it. And, and then, and I'm going to hopefully talk about this part as one of my final tips. I'll cover it now in case I miss. Uh, and this, this goes back to a few years, a few years ago with Jack Burns. So, so on your question, Carrie, we've got now I'm on my map too. And I'm, I'm fishing now. I'm, I'm trying to find out what, how big are they in here? And um, anyway, I'll, I'll back up to, to Jack Burns. Uh, Jack had a cabin, I had a cabin, and if we were nearby and up there to get at the same time, we would uh, we got in the habit, we both like to get up at four or five and go up. We like to be up before sunrise. We both love that. So we got in the habit of once in a while we would alternate. I, one morning we'd take my boat, we'd go to my spot. The next morning we'd take his boat, go to his spot. And the guy that's driving would, would fish his spot in his way and so on. And both of us, as, as, as has been the case on other things, learned, learned something really unique about that. And that is that you can be, you can have 50 years of experience and you can still get yourself in the rut. And so one of my tips was going to be, and we'll cover it right now, is the map tool approach is great. And what happens though, if you're not careful, and I learned this by how Jack would fish spots that I was familiar with, totally different, totally different. And he would consider them big fish spots. And I would say, what the hell is he talking about? I've never seen anything but dinks here. And it all comes down to we, we fish pretty much the same way, but he does something different or he approaches that spot different. And by God, it's, it's on my list. Why don't I, why don't I approach it different? So the next time I pull up to that spot, instead of starting on the shoreline 30 yards down and working out to the point or the rocks or to the weed bed, whatever, why don't I do that? Why don't I do it different? Why don't I come right at it out from the point going in and go left and instead of right, stay out farther or going closer as the case, case may be? Why don't I do what Jack does here? And by God, the answer to that is, you may have 10 of your best spots, and chances are darn good that you're going to pull up and fish those 10 spots the same way every time you do it. And they're still good spots, and you're still going to catch fish. But Lord, Katie, bar the door, what might happen if you, if you get out of that rut and remain flexible even on your best spot? On good weather days, try some of your old spots in a new way. New lures, new distance out, new directional thing. Um, does that make any sense? I hope it is. It's a it's a tip that 
I think the most educated, intelligent, great muskie fisherman can learn from is never get in a rut about your best spots. Your best spots can be better. Your mediocre spots can become your best spots. It's all the way you approach it. It's a factor of boat control, I guess. But anyway, so I don't know if it's Terry, I'm rambling. I don't know if that answered your question, but it's kind of a step process online, in person, maps one, maps two approach type thing. It's old school, and I still end up with a hard map. Something I can look at and, and ponder and tinker with and so on. And, and, and you know, my, my, my approach really doesn't hasn't changed and I, I I know my Canadian friend is kind of doing that in this area and uh, I mean it's, it, it, I'm sure there are better ways to do it but it's worked for me and, and uh, I continue using it. There's many times we reference the paper map also. I mean we have a few even even bodies of water that we're super familiar with. There's We have a few paper maps hanging in the shop here that they get looked at every once in a while that maybe we should try this, maybe we should try that. So I, I, I think having a paper map and your electronics is probably a good thing because you can put, you can see all the pieces at one time on a paper map and you can't on the map on your electronics. Not unless you got yeah. a screen. Yeah, Carrie, Carrie hit it perfectly because if you think about it, in order to see the entire body of water, Sometimes you need to have that paper map in front of you where, you know, like she said, if you're working on electronics, you get bits and pieces. And, you know, with today's map cards, one foot, you know, contours, it's pretty incredible. But uh, you put that on paper and, hey, I caught a fish here yesterday. Look at this spot. It looks just the same. So it, it empowers yeah, you to be able to hit good stuff. Yeah, no, it's... Uh... As you know, Brad, I've talked to you the last few days about about technology and how I've got to drag myself away from the old rock and rope position I'm in. I'm, I'm not quite that bad. I mean, I've got some graphs and so on, but I, I've, I'm intrigued now with what Mega360 or, or uh, LiveScope or whatever the case may be, whatever the manufacturer may be, I'm intrigued as heck of what that might do on new water and how I might use that to save time and so on. And the problem is age. It's not likely I'm going to be doing a lot of exploring anymore, but that, that, that again goes back to how I ended in, in my book about talking about what I saw in the future. And what, one of the frontiers I saw was open water. And I think that's just opening up. Let me, let me ask you, you folks a question. I'll get into another good point that I feared I was going to miss. Is there technology out there that would allow you to accurately measure on the move water temps and water movement at depth? Now, I almost at one time remember buying a, I think it was a Cabela's, it was a Fishhawk product that entailed the use of a downrigger that gave you constant water temps and, and uh, speeds. But I'm talking something more. Is there something out there more recent? I mentioned USGS, uh, United States Geological Survey people, are using these handheld thermals. And they are, they are reading, they are seeing temperature changes and how it moves through the water. And I'm telling you, they don't know it. 
But the fish applications for that is going to is going to be another step beyond anything mega that I'm aware of. Now maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's I keep thinking maybe the salmon guys in the Great Lakes or even the musky guys now in the Great Lakes are using are able to detect water and water movement based on temperature at depth. Um, because the person who invents that and learns how to use that, and then we start putting together how that fits with, and it, it won't take long because I'm so convinced that the, you know, even a bathtub has water movement. And water movement is, it's mixing things. It's, it's changing dissolved oxygen. It's concentrating everything. It's telling us, if we could read it correctly, where the whole food chain is likely to be or will soon be. I know I'm, now I get weird again. I, you know, I'm sorry, but I, I, I guess I want to know, is there something out there that I have missed other than what I told you about from the U.S. Ge- Geological? They're using handheld, by the way, handheld thermal cameras that are giving them temperature and showing the temperature distinctions in flowing water. Is there something out there that does that now? Because if there is, that's a, that's a frontier that, well, you, you're going to need map three because you're going to, I think, discover consistent, I used to call them rivers within lakes where there's almost always current. If there's, if there's big wind, there'll be strong currents for three or four days afterwards. If you, can, if you had a way to map that, you would, you would, in effect, I think, be mapping solid lines of, of bait and, 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 you know, if you, if you can map comfort zones in terms of temperature and associate that with, with bait and how bait moves in relation to water movement, well, you're going to be on fish trolling. Instead of 10% of the time, I think you'll flip it. It'll be 90% of the time. In a way, I'm kind of hoping I'm wrong, but I don't think I am. So I don't know. Is that technology out there? And I've just been missing it. I'm, I'm, I'm really am a dinosaur. So you guys tell me. I don't know if it's out there. I'm, I'm probably not making sense. No, I, make, I think you're making perfect sense, Dick. The, the thing that I can't think of anything other than what our salmon fishermen are using, like you said, off the downrigger. I'm not aware of any other products that are doing that currently, but. Uh, as you know, if you're a salmon or a trout fisherman out on the Great Lakes or wherever it might be, speed and temperature is a huge, crucial part to that. And by, by no means would muskies not be affected by the same thing. So definitely oh, yeah. something to think about. Don't, don't we eat that little fish hawk too, don't we? Yeah, you can get a little fish hawk, which is more so for basically telling you how deep your bait went at any given point and what the temperature is at the lowest point that that bait okay. hit. But yeah, that's not I, what I you're remember looking I, for. Yeah, I, I remember I almost spent it with 700 bucks or, or more. I can't remember. Cabela's had them, and I thought, you know what? i got to do this. And I said, no, you know what? You're too damn old. Let someone else do this. <laughs> but but, but I, this thermal thing is that. I mean, this is a different animal. This is, this is, they're getting, but I don't know is a depth. I'm going to find out though. But there, if I understand, there's a study out there. So if, if for people interested, do a, do a Google USGS slash thermal imaging. No, water temp, water temp by thermal imaging or something like that. You come up, there's a study 
they've got they've, they've got a paper or two published already. And if I'm reading this correctly, they are in fact using a handheld camera, thermal camera, to trace. You know, so so their job, let's say, is get their trace groundwater coming into a river or something, or or bad fluent affluent coming into a river or something. They can go, they can aim this camera, and they can trace that water column based on colors and whatnot. They can trace the temperature and how that hits. That the water temperature, it, the water at that temperature, how it's moving. Where is it going? Is it going up, going down, going left, going right? Well, I'm here to tell you that I think in, if, I had, if I had an instrument that would work at some depth, and, and I wouldn't be talking the very bottom, I'd be talking perhaps the zone, you know, two feet, two feet this depth, if it's 10 feet, I'd be talking the top 20 feet, where I think all the, all the world flows anyway. The zone where you can have enough sunlight to have photosynthesis, where you can, where I think the food chain is 90% of the time, but if I could have a piece of equipment that would tell me, say, down 20 feet, 40, 40 would be ideal, but if I could go 30 feet as a middle ground approach. If I could, if I could detect temperature and how it moves, a water at a certain temperature moved, I would, I could, within a week, I think I could map out on map three a whole series of trolling runs that would be in the zone 90% of the time. Now I know, I can only imagine what's going to happen to you poor guys after this podcast. I can only imagine. But, I also know there are people out there, guys like, Mike, say Mike Roger. If he's not doing it, if he had the means to do it, he he would not. He might chuckle at me. I'm sure he does at times, but I don't think he'd chuckle very long because I think Mike's the type of guy that would do it, and he may be doing it. Maybe all kinds of people doing it. I don't know that. If we talk about my musky regrets, by the way, we'll we'll talk about. Lazarus, and we'll talk about the Great Lakes and Out East, and Nip, and Georgian Bay, and McGregor Bay, and the North Channel, and I've got some of my life's greatest regrets, but you know, I'm also a hunter, and things always conflict, but I'll quit rambling, but if I could do that, if I had that instrument, so I said that's how significant I think it is, and I hope someone, there'll be young guys that would pursue this now, and that's good, that's a good thing. I think that you could, I mean, you, you will, for instance, it, it, even if you doubt my theories about it, what you could do is when you catch a fish or you're finding bait consistently, and we're going to talk about this when we get to open water, if, you, if you're going to find areas that consistently have bait and consistently have muskies out in the middle of nowhere, you could take that and you would be able to figure out why I firmly believe that. Because the water flow and water temperature is the key to location. And... Um, I don't know. I'll shut up. You guys wanted something valuable instead of sheer speculation. So, Carrie, I, I'm sorry. I rambled on you, but that's how, that's how I do it. And I think the next step would be to take new technology and go to what would be my map three might be someone else's approach and way to record that and document it. But I think, I think that's the, that's the biggest new frontier is stuff like that. So I've killed you time-wise already. We haven't got anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's perfectly fine. Um, so, Dick, one question I had, and I heard you talk about it a couple times, was good weather. What do you yeah. cons- what do you classify as good weather? Well, I like a, 
I, I'm, a, I'm, you know, keep in mind now that my formative years, I had those early experiences in Wisconsin, at least, but my formative years were on trout water. And, and so my weather is a bit tainted based on historically getting the crap kicked out of me in certain types of weather. And so I, I, I love an oncoming front. I always say get out in front of front. And I'm talking even a day in front of front. If you, with, with today's weather forecasting ability and the technology and information available, if you've got choices, you get out in front of front and by a day, and then it gets better as the front approaches until literally it's blowing you off the lake or damn near killing you. So I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a pressure storm kind of guy. When I hear, when it's hot and humid and I hear rumbling in the distance, I'm a happy, I'm a happy guy. I have days that even on the worst, defined most times as the clearest trout water, you have days where for unexplained reasons, I, you know, I know all the theories about bird up there digesting and Doug Johnson's got the best theory on those big fish laying up shallow in the sun. He says, director, because they feel good. <laughs> and uh, Doug boils things down to its basics. Now, I don't know if they're digesting. That makes great sense to me. I remember Larry Ramsdale telling me that decades ago. But uh, whatever they're doing, I have those days like everyone else because I've spent more of those days probably than 99.9% of the people on that kind of water. So I have those days. And I have those days where you know, I used to beat myself up in the sun to where people would literally almost cry, you know, let us out, and I wouldn't quit. And then all of a sudden, you know, I, I, I might be throwing a next giant killer across the top of a two-foot reef surrounded by 150 feet of water, and bingo, I got a 50. You know, I mean, I, I, I have, I can't explain that, and you know, somehow in my mind, I feel like I should be able to explain stuff like that. I can't. So I, I understand those exceptions to the weather. But I, to answer your question, Jeff, I'm an old school guy. I love rumbling in the distance. And the closer it gets, now I want to tell you something else. Uh, and I don't recommend this to people. I don't do it very often anymore. I figure if I've lived this long, I've, I've way outlived the chances I've taken. But I used to love to fish in storms. I I don't want to pick on Pipestone. I can pick on Dryberry or, or Long-Legged or, or Whitefish Bay or Dog Park. I mean, I can pick 25 good trout lakes. But I, I remember one case on Pipestone in particular is why I'll pick on that lake, is we had a, we had a terrible two or three days. I mean, on Pipestone, terrible is defined as maybe we saw a couple fish in two or three days. Uh, I know damn well we didn't catch any. Um, and that, that's, that's fishing hard and that's fishing two hours after dark and, and so on. And then, then we had this storm coming and the, and the, and the good friend that I was with at the time would fish right up to the storm. But when the booming started, he'd get out. Well, the booming started in this case and he actually got out. I didn't take him back. <laughs> we were in, we had a cabin. I didn't take him back, but he got out and I fished away. And I remember. It was pouring so hard that I thought there's no way, there's no way, there's no way. And yet I fished 
three neck down areas, probably, you know, not very wide, but I, I fished in pretty much just walls. I fished those three areas back and forth because everything else was just a gale, horizontal wind, um, gale winds. And I, I went up and down, and I remember there was an old friend of Roger Hall with his name, Donnie Pepper, used to tie these gigantic bucktails. Now, they were, you always put a Vibrex or some small blade on them, but they were gigantic in terms of hair. And I know guys like Larry Ramzo had a bunch of them. Donnie Pepper was the guy's name. Anyway, I, was, I had a yellow and red bucktail on, and I had a, probably a Vibrex or maybe even a Mets blade. I don't remember. You know, I would hybridize things. And I caught seven big muskies on Pipestone Lake. Now, there aren't many people in the world can say that. I don't care when they fished it. There aren't many people in the world can say they caught seven fish in one day in Pipestone, but I did it about two hours. So I'm, that's what's been drilled into me, Jeff, is, you know, I've been pounded, I've been beat literally close to death on, on those crystal clear trout lakes. So hammered in is the fact that when that, when that front is coming, I'm going to be there somehow, and I'm going to make it work. Um, again, I rambled on you. I, I kind of warned you guys that that'll be the problem. You'll ask a question, and I'll give you three answers. But that you know, I'm, I, I I don't have, I don't follow the barometer. I should. I've known that for fifty years. I should, I should have a barometer in my boat, but I don't. What I what I think I have is sort of a. It's not a sixth sense, really. It's, a, it's time on the water again. I have a feel. Um, there are days that I think the weather is mediocre, but I'll, I'll take that weather. I, I'm one of these guys that I have a, um, hopefully I'll talk about this later on open water. I have a thought process that I call um, combining elements. And so I will take mediocre mediocre weather and I will combine it with some other environmental edge. It might be a classic would be dawn or dusk. So I'll take mediocre weather, I'll combine it with dawn or dusk or or a, uh, a major or minor and we'll I'm sure get to that. I'll combine it with that and uh, maybe I will have wind and I'll I'll, I'll, I'll try to put those, let's say that's all I got. I, I'll, I'll rack my brain and I'll say, I can't, I can't put them up together today, but I got mediocre weather. Maybe if I concentrate on adding um, wind and so on, I'll, 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 that, that'll direct me to, might, might, might direct me to a point, might direct me somewhere where I got those three, say three things where I'm at. It's done. I've got some wind. Uh, I've got uh, mediocre weather, so then I might say, "What what does this mean in terms of blurs? What should I do?" Anyway, I've got that sort of process in my mind ingrained that I want to try to combine things. The more good things I can put together is if I can take three mediocre conditions: modest wind, mediocre weather, combine it with a good condition, dawn, dusk, major, minor, that sort of thing. All of a sudden, bingo. My odds just went up. That's the way I think. It's probably goofy. I know I I got good friends that laugh at me, but I mean that's the way that's the way I work. So I don't know. There we go again. I probably didn't answer anything. <laughs> no, I think you hit it. That was good. All right, so Dick, this 
episode was informative as far as the history side of you getting to know you. We didn't dive super deep into details on how to catch muskies. So what I think we're going to do is we're going to wrap this one up for this week. And we've never done this before. We're going to do a part two for this podcast and we'll catch you all next week. So we really appreciate you all coming out to listen to Backlash Podcast and we will catch you all next week.